we definitely live in a time and a place where marriage has really lost pretty much any sense of meaning. Um, that apart from the ideas of like same-sex marriage, we, I mean, marriage has been utterly debased in our society for 50, 60 years, where seri serial um, polygamy has become sort of the, the new norm. I mean, think of the people like seven marriages. Like, you're, you're, um, there's no idea like, oh, okay, this is a lifelong institution, et cetera. Like, that's not where we are necessarily in a society when people hear marriage. People hear marriage, they think of all sorts of different things. And a key starting point is sometimes at the church you'll hear the term holy matrimony used. And it sounds kind of hoity-toity, but the, the one nice thing about the term and the, one of the reasons why it gets used a little bit more and more is trying to distinguish the fact that we don't mean a man-made institution because society definitely has a view of marriage that at some point in time society thinks men got together, um, well, I guess not. I mean, use man, men in the generic sense, men and women. I guess nowadays you might think men got together. But men and women got together, and they decided, hey, wouldn't it be convenient if we had this institution called marriage, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that is not the church's view on marriage, that marriage is actually a divinely instituted um, thing, that God actually created marriage, that marriage is something that we've received rather than that we get to make up. So we didn't get to make up the definition of it. We just, it's something simply received. So that's why we use the term matrimony more and more to signify, no, this is something different, something received, not um, something that we can make up entirely for ourselves. Um, I mean, like I said, we definitely, I saw on the news a few weeks back, a guy who was in Indiana that was suing because he wanted to marry his computer. Um, it was even an Apple computer, so I mean, but the, he was wanting to legally marry his computer. Um, that when you've reached that point, there's, yeah, that's sort of like the point of absurdity. And part of that all comes down to, um, we definitely live in a time and place in society where we don't think of anything as being a received reality. That we think that it's actually enshrined in Supreme Court decision in the 1970s that, quote unquote, that man has a right to de define reality for himself, which is ultimately absurd. Um, like you can't decide tomorrow like, hey, I don't believe that, that gravity exists. So I'm gonna go like jump off a building and, make, and fly because you will basically get smacked with the reality of gravity when you hit the pavement. Um, so likewise, in life, when we try to make up realities for ourselves, eventually reality reasserts itself and smacks us in the face. Um, so anyway, and that one place actually where that is, is in ma marriage. And, but anyway, um, I'm get digressing. So I wanted to go back. All right, so why, what is this received thing of marriage, matrimony, etc.? This is the last time I'll call it matrimony because it's a stupid term. Um, marriage, what is this, um, this received thing? That ultimately, Marriage is, I was going to say, it is a symbol or a sign that points towards the two, sort of the two greatest realities that there are. God himself, the, the beginning of all and end of all things, and then also the relationship that we're going to have with God for eternity in heaven. Sort of the beginning and the end. Um, that marriage is, and I'll come back to this, sort of a Rosetta Stone that um, 
that God gave us from the very beginning so that we could know who we are and what our purpose is in, in existence. And so, what is it made when I say to be in, it's in something that points towards the image of God? That um, this is a very complex idea for understanding um, what God intended marriage to be in the beginning, but it's actually really not that complex. Um, it just sounds a little bit more so because I'm mumbling because I stayed up too late. All right. So anyway, in the very beginning, God created man. So we all know the idea that God's made in man's image. Now, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, every individual, we say, is made in the image of God. That... Um, so God made Adam first, Adam's there, and Adam's made in the image of God. How? Well, what, what is God? That first of all, we have to say that God is infinite. That's the one thing that's important to know about God whenever you're talking about God to start with, is that God alone is infinite. He's perfect in every possible way. If you're saying, what is God? He is infinity. Um, he is the, the sum, the the summation of all good things. Um, or another way of understanding it is to say that God is reality itself. Um, that this is how the ancient Greeks understood him. When, when Aristotle talked about God being the logos, meaning that they understood that there has to be this supreme reality that holds everything together and brings any sense of, any sense, of sense to creation and existence. Like, why does 2 plus 2 equal 4 and not equal hedgehog? Like, why is it that, like, is there anything such as logic um, that there has to be this divine, supreme reality that they call the Logos that is infinite? And, um, and more than that, that also exists as part of his very nature, part of what he is. Um, meaning that any of us, we don't have to exist meaning that there's a time and place when we didn't exist. And that if we cease to exist tomorrow, like our mom might think that the world's going to come to an end, or our spouse or future spouse, but it won't. Um, the world will not literally stop if we cease to exist. But God has to exist. If he didn't exist, everything would cease to exist. And this is what we call in philosophy, they call the necessary being, meaning that he's the only being that actually part of his very nature of what he is, is it's necessary that he exists, it, that it's not necessary that we exist. And you actually see this, um, this idea of God in both, like I said, Greek philosophy, but also even in scripture, um, that think of Moses and, and the burning bush. If you've all if you read the story of Moses after he leaves Egypt, or at least seen the movies, the old um, Prince of Egypt, you ever see the, the animated one, um, or Ten Commandments, there's a scene where Moses is in the desert and he encounters God in this burning bush. And I always thought it was weird when I was a kid that when Moses asked God, like, who are you? Like, who should, because God tells Moses, go back to Egypt and tell the Israelites that he's going to lead them out of bondage. And Moses says, hey, but who should I tell them sent me? And the name that God gives for himself is he says, I am who I am. And I just remember thinking, that's a weird answer when I was a kid. Until it dawned on me taking first semester Latin in college. And when I got to the 
to be verbs, and they're actually very similar in Latin than as in Spanish. So like Spanish, it's soy es est. Um, in Latin, it's sum es est. So almost the exact same. And But I remember that while we translate them, obviously, like if you want to say, um, I am tall, you would say sum altus. Um, I mean, it's very similar to Spanish, soy alto. Um, but in Latin, though, more than that, you can actually have a sentence that is just the to be verb by itself. So you could have a sentence that says sum, or a sentence that says s, or a sentence that says est, into sentence. And if that was the case, what you would translate it as is not I, I am something, but you would translate it as I am alive, or I exist. Or you would, in grandiose way of saying like I am, like I am alive, I exist. And Hebrew is the same way. Um, and that's actually one of the ways that you say that someone's dead in Latin is you'd say like non est, like they are dead. They do are not exist anymore. So God, when he says like who I am, when he asks who he is, he says I am. He is existence itself is what he's saying. He is reality itself. He's the necessary being who's actually existence is part of actually who he is, his very nature. Um, so that's pretty cool. Now, I'm going to come back to that so I, but in a few minutes. But so think that's, that's that point. God is infinite. All right, so what did he easily make man in his image? Man is obviously not infinite. Um, Adam does not share in the fact that his existence is not part of his essence. Um, but there are a lot of ways that Adam does reflect the image of God. So first of all, that God had being having personhood, that he's not just this abstract force like Star Wars, but having actual personhood, um, he has a free will and he has an intellect, meaning free will that God can choose to do things um, and that he has an intellect and that, but I mean, he has a perfect intellect that he thinks he knows, um, etc. He knows everything. That Adam was given the gifts, obviously, of free will and intellect. And this is what distinguishes human beings from every other animal, um, is that uh, chinchilla has a life force within it. It has kind of like a little chinchilla soul, if you will. It um, it's, can interact with the world around it. It can eat whatever chinchillas eat, little fruits and berries or something, I don't know. Um, and it can do those things, but it doesn't have ultimately, we would say, a rational intellect or a free will, meaning that all animals, they have instincts that they have to follow. That as much as we may love our dog, our dog is not going to be self-sacrificial. Um, that dogs have to follow their instincts, meaning they, the way you train a dog is that you either have to use threat of pain or promise of pleasure that they have to, as part of following their instincts, basically try to avoid pain and pursue pleasure. Um, they don't have a choice. They can't decide like halfway through, like, oh, I'm going to do this painful thing because I know it's right in the eternal sense. Like, a dog can't do that. But having free will is we have the ability, going back all the way back to Adam, being in the image of God, to choose to do what's right, even though we know that it's going to be no fun. Um, that we, if our instincts, if we decide that our instincts are telling us the wrong thing, we can choose to ignore them, um, to go against them, to overcome them. And so likewise, having a rational intellect, 
that we can actually think about in terms of abstracts. Like a dog can't sit around and think about the nature of doghood. It just can't happen. Um, that'd be a pretty cool dog. But anyway, but we can. That we can think in abstract. So Adam, he's made in the image of God. And more than that, part of God's very nature when you're doing descriptions of God from the beginning is that God is, we'd say, he is a creator. There's something about God that he, by his very nature, creates things. Um, so there's a question always, like, why did he create the universe? He didn't have to. He wasn't lacking anything. But there's something about his nature that he creates things. So likewise, Adam from the very beginning, man from the very beginning, um, also creates things. Like, we are little sub-creators, that we love to make things, to bring order to things, etc. Um, and the good example of that is the job that Adam gets given in the beginning of naming the animals, um, that God's sort of letting man participate in creation, knowing that Adam's not going to make it any better, um, but he still lets him participate. And that's a key theme that God, from the very beginning, allows man to participate in his work and in his plans, kind of like a parent that allows like a five-year-old to help make the cookies, that knowing that the five-year-old is not going to make the cookies any better. They're not going to be like this master chef that's going to come up with these great ideas and going to improve the recipe. Like the improvement of the recipe is like the little pieces of eggshell that could fall in, the giant lump of baking soda, that all they do is screw it up. Um, but the loving parent doesn't say like, nope, you go in the other room. Um, I'm going to do this all myself. They actually let them participate. And so likewise, from the very beginning, God actually lets man participate in all of his plans, knowing that, yeah, we're going to screw it up, but he's a loving father, so he lets us um, take a hand. And so God being a creator, that there's two parts to creation, ultimately. Um, whatever to, to create literally means to make something out of nothing. So the first part is that, that it bringing something out of nothing. That's the first part of creation. And God alone ultimately can do this. We call this ex nihilo, out of nothing, literally, from the Latin. That, that all of a sudden there, there's nothing, and then all of a sudden, like, bam, there's something. That that's something that God alone can do. Um, but the second part of creation is the bringing order of the, to the thing that was created. And this is the part that, from the beginning, God lets Adam participate in. And this is ultimately when we create anything, we are, like I said, we're not making anything out of nothing. We're just bringing shape and order to what has already been created. Um, that, I mean, the first one was that, which, any scientists in here, what, the first law, third law of thermodynamics, which law is it? That energy can neither be created nor destroyed, simply transformed. That's the, the, the idea that we can't create energy, we can't create matter, like we only take things and reshape it. Um, so that's what we do, though. But we love to bring order to, to creation, um, creating art, creating beauty. Um, there's, I mean, a reason why, as much as there's something cool about raw nature, but raw nature that has been slightly transformed into a beautiful garden can actually be more beautiful in many ways than the raw nature can be. Um, you just have to go to England and see some of the the landscapes that they've done at some of the great houses where they would actually try to make it look natural but improved upon and it actually works um, look up the work of capability brown um, that is pretty cool that so man actually gets to create work it 
in the bringing order in, in that part of creation. So Adam, it's great. He's in the image of God. Now, an important point, though, is that there's something missing that after Adam's created. That even though he's in the image of God, in some ways we can say he's, he's not fully in the image of God yet. That it's important when you're reading through the story of creation that, first of all, that the story in the Bible it gets told twice. Um, that chapter 1 of Genesis, and actually your homework that no one will ever know if you don't do, but it would be a good idea, is read the first three chapters of Genesis um, before you get married. That the first chapter, you have sort of the big picture. That, well, on this day, God created this, and this day, God created this, and it's just short descriptions of all of them. And then finally, on the sixth day, God creates all of the animals, and then it says... Um, God created man in his image, in the divine image he created them, male and female he created them. And this is going to be a key point, that it's only when you have men, male and female, men and women together, is the image of God most fully revealed. But then in the second chapter, you have going back in more focus on that sixth day. Like, okay, we've given the overarching picture, now let's go back to that sixth day and delve a little deeper, talk about what it was like when Adam was by himself, how Adam was in the image of God, but there's something a little bit missing. And what's missing is we talked about how individually man reflects a lot of what, what God is, being a creator, um, having free will and intellect, um, wanting to participate in God's nature, of God. Um, goodness, his beauty, his um, truth. Um, but what's missing is a participation in who God is. Because God is more than just, like I said, an abstract force. Um, but he is actually not even just a person, but a, commun a communion of persons. Um, and so it's only in relationship by having a second person, Adam and Eve, that you're going to actually have a reflection of who God is. In a, in a fuller sense. And for understanding this, you have to understand the idea of the Trinity. Um, that God is infinite, but he is also three persons and one God. And that for Trinity 101, refresher of your Trinity, Trinitarian theology, that whenever you think you understand the Trinity perfectly, um, you don't. But, but I always... You know, and one always has to be careful because whenever you use analogies trying to explain the Trinity, that usually you end up being heretical somewhere. Um, there was actually a great YouTube video saw last year on St. Patrick's Day because everyone knows like the, the famous story of St. Patrick trying to explain the Trinity with like a little shamrock. And anyway, the video was made by some Lutherans, and they were pointing like so he tries to explain a little cartoon St. Patrick tries to explain to the Irish the Trinity with the shamrock, and they're like, yeah, but that's the heresy of, I don't remember what it was called, like modalism. He's like, oh, well, let me try this analogy. And like, that's the heresy of this. And so anyway, he goes, like St. Patrick finally gives up um, after trying to explain and keep running into heresy after heresy. But anyway, that being said, so God is infinite. His existence is part of his very nature. But he's more than that. He is, I am who I am, he says to Moses. But then that's not the last part that he says. He says, I am who I am. And then he, the next sentence he says, I am the God of your fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Meaning that there's two parts to God. There's his, 
that his existence is part of his essence, but he's also a God of relationship. That's another part of it, um, of who he is. And that's actually why the, um, the ancient Jewish name for God, when they call him Yahweh, that it literally would translate as my God who is being. Um, so my God who is being. So what does that mean, that second part, though? That with the idea of the Trinity, that there's a good sort of, I think, intellectual exercise for trying to um, understand the Trinity that's key for understanding marriage. And that is, first of all, remember that all the persons of the Trinity are equally God in every way, shape, and form. They are equally infinite. There was never a time or place where there was a Father but no Son. Likewise with the Holy Spirit. They are all in equally God in every way, shape, and form. Um, everything you can say about one, you can say about the other. Um, other than that the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, and neither of them is the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing distinction you can make. So the key, though, like I said, it's an intellectual exercise, is if you can imagine God the Father. So you start off with one person. Obviously, this is intellectual exercise because they're always, always, all, always there. Um, all three are always there. So you start with the one person, God the Father. Now, the thing about God is if God is to think about himself, and God does think about himself, just like we think about ourselves, and we try to make an image of ourselves in our mind, like if you were to close your eyes, you don't really have to do this, but if you were to close your eyes and try to imagine yourself, you would have a little imperfect image of yourself in your mind. Um, we always, I don't know about you, but when you try to imagine people's faces, it's really hard to do so. If you try to imagine your own face, like it's always really imperfect. But the fact is we're not just physical beings either. We have an eternal soul. Um, so you can't really imagine that perfectly either. Um, I mean, if you want to see how deluded people's views of themselves are, you just watch the first week of American Idol um, when it's on and you're like, oh yeah, people really have bad images of themselves. Um, so, but anyway, God, because he's perfect, the image that he has of himself when he thinks about himself is perfect, is lacking in nothing. Um, that there is, that image doesn't have anything missing from it. The entirety of, entirety of his very nature, his ex essence, is present in that image. Everything. And what did we say was part of God's very nature, his essence? Existence itself. So by very definition, when he thinks about himself and he has that image that's a perfect reflection, it has to exist. The image has to exist as much as himself does. And that image is what we call the Son. And there's a reason why we use the terms Father and Son. That there's not an attempt to be, um, I don't know, um, sexist that this was back in the 70s actually South Carolina made worldwide Catholic news for not good reasons because there was this one parish in South Carolina that can remain nameless that uh, thought hey isn't it kind of sexist that we're using these terms father son and holy spirit because they're masculine terms father and son and wouldn't it be better if we started calling it um, the creator the redeemer and the sanctifier and so they start actually baptizing their babies in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. And the Catholic Church, Vatican, said um, those weren't real baptisms. First of all, Jesus said to do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all you really did was get those babies wet. Nothing happened. They weren't really baptized. Um, but more than that, 
creator, redeemer, and sanctifier are your descriptors of things that God has done in time. But the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are descriptors of who God is through eternity. Um, and that a father, what is a father? A father is not a proper name. It's a name of relationship. A father is one who generates a son. And a son is a name of relationship, one that's generated from the father. So that's why we use those terms, because the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, the only thing that distinguishes them is that the father generates the son, and the son is generated from the father. One's the image, one's not. They are infinitely God in every other single way. I mean, they are infinitely God, period. Um, but the one descriptor, the descriptor is the distinction of relationship. One is generated, one generates. And generates is an important term. It's the same reason why in the creed we say begotten, not made. Generates means coming eternally from. Um, not that one point in time he didn't exist and then like poof, he came into existence. So anyway, you have those two persons. Now, when they see each other, um, they have, when God sees good things, God loves good things perfectly. And what's better than there you go, more gooder. What's more gooder than God himself? So when the Father and the Son see each other, they have perfect love one for the other because there is nothing better than God himself. Um, so they have perfect love for each other. Now the thing, though, about perfect love is that ultimately, one of, actually one of the most <clears throat> profound verses in the Bible that's one of the shortest is the, the, the verse, God is love. Um, that we have a tendency to, because we don't understand what love is, to nowadays use it in overly sentimental terms like, God is love. Um, he, he just like is a squishy feeling that makes you like, no, that's not what it means. That love ultimately is defined by God himself. Um, that's why love has all sorts of ser very serious parts to it that is ultimately defined as the complete gift of yourself to another oh, without holding anything back. Um, that because God himself is love. Now, ultimately, when we use the term love, we're using it, if God is love, just use that as a statement, A equals B, God equals love, that every time we talk about love, we are use, basically using it at, in proportion, talking about it in proportion to the very definition. So just like you could say that you have a very def true definition of the color blue that you can say that these shades of blue, that we'll talk about them in relation to this ideal idea of what blue is. Um, there's a reason why you don't call red like light blue, because you actually have an idea in your mind, this is true blue, and this is simply in like relation to that blue. So there's a reason why light blue isn't blue, it's light blue. Dark blue is dark blue, because they're not that true thing. So every Every time we talk about love, it's merely in proportion to that true definition of love, which is God. Now, the thing, though, is about that love that is God, that if you were to take away anything from God, it wouldn't be true ultimate love. So because that love is perfect, it means that it includes everything about God in its entirety um, without anything missing, which also includes existence. So that very love that the two have, one for the other, is also a person. Um, the term 
that we use for the relationship they have. It's called divine spiration, which is pretty cool because you have the father and the son with this perfect love for each other or they see each other and this perfect love like spirals out from it. Um, that it's not stagnant, that there's this life-giving spinning forth of, um, of perfect love. And so ultimately, like, what do you have? You have a family. Like, God is a family. Um, that the two have perfect love for each other, and the result is the spiraling forth of a third. Um, so, this deepest of all mysteries, the Holy Trinity, that it is so important and so profound that God actually inscribed it onto human nature um, by creating male and female, by making Adam and Eve, by making marriage from the very beginning, that he made it to be this eternal image built into our very existence that points towards who God is as a holy trinity, um, which is pretty cool. That, from, that, that he stamped on us individually images of what he is, and then he stamped on us, on our very nature, our existence from the beginning and our relationships of who he is. Um, so everything literally in creation points towards God and nothing more so than man um, and male and men and women together. Um, and actually more than that, what's even cooler um, is that by creating male and female, by creating man and woman, that he actually allowed man to go even farther in be, being co-creators with him, in a letting man participate in creation. That before Adam, he could name the animals. We're like, okay, that's kind of cool. Like, he can come up with some names. I'm sure God could have come up with some cooler names, but he could come up with some names. Like, that's fun. Um, but remember, man can't participate in that first act of creation, of creating something out of nothing. Except... When God creates male and female, he actually starts to let man participate in the first act of creation. And the only place in existence that man can create or participate in creating out of nothing is in procreation. Um, which, it's ultimately, God alone is the only one that can create out of nothing. But in procreation, he only does so in response to our choices. Um, so it's kind of like... God giving the nuclear launch codes to man and said, all right, like, you can have my nuclear launch codes. Um, you can have the keys to the Ferrari. Like, try not to screw it up. Um, and there's a reason why, like I said, what does man do? Like, we like to screw it up. And um, that's why most sins, actually, I would say probably almost all sins in the world um, start with sexual sins because it is the greatest gift that God ever gave to man, and therefore is the one that's most attacked and most abused, and the one that gets most screwed up. So anyway, any questions so far? What God planned marriage to be like wasn't that cool? Nothing? All right. Then what happened, though, is man screwed it up. That God planned for that, but then we screwed it up that there's uh, sometimes people argue like how long did Adam and Eve last in the garden before they screwed things up before they sinned and th there's been all sorts of theologians because part of it is the Catholic view on creation and on the book of Genesis is a little bit what's it called poetic 
meaning that the church teaches that, you know what, there was an original Adam and Eve. God created the world out of nothing. Um, but Genesis is written in poetic language by that God, when he inspires the Bible, um, he would let people use their own. Like, he would give the ideas and keep it from any air, but he would let them use their own grammar, their own um, writing style. And the ancient Hebrews that wrote it were very poetic people. Um, they, didn't, they were not sort of anal American historians that were trying to write down, like, historical facts and great details. That's not how they were. Um, so there is a little bit of poeticness to it. So meaning like how long were Adam and Eve there or how long were the days of creation, um, the church is, doesn't really say. Um, I used to have students that used to ask me like how old is the earth? And I'm sure you've all heard this, how you'll have in the world nowadays you'll have some evangelicals will say, well, it's 6,000 years old because God created the world in six literal days, and you can count in the Bible like a, like a math textbook, and you can say the world is 6,000 years old. And then you have the other side, maybe the, the evolutionary atheist will say, nope, using science, it's 6 billion years old. And I used to have students ask me, well, how long old is the Catholic Church say the world is? And I would say between 6,000 and 6 billion years old. Um, that and the point is that, I mean, it's vague. It's not, it could, it ultimately could be both. Like if God wanted to make it in 6,000 years, fine. Um, do I think he did that? No. Um, that, this is a, a little bit of a side note, but a key point is that in Hebrew, showing the unspecific, unscientific side of it, that the word they use for day is actually the exact same word they use for week, year, age, Etc. They have one word, Yom, Y-O-M, like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that literally means period of time. And the only way that you tell what period of time is by the context. So when it says on the first day God created the heavens and the earth, it could ultimately mean in the first age God created the heavens and the earth. How did he do it? He could have used the Big Bang. He could have used all, I mean, it's God. He can do it however he wants. Um, and the only reason why people at one point in time, a couple hundred years ago, started saying, well, it had to be a concrete day is because it says the sun rose and the moon fell on like the first day. Um, but the key point about that is that's also figurative language. Like, have you ever heard like the, 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 the sun set on the age of like the Bronze Age? Um, so anyway... So how long were Adam and Eve in the garden is the point. They could have been in there for a million years. Don't know. But they also could have been there for 10 minutes. And so actually I heard someone try to make that argument once, that they were in there probably for around 10 minutes. Um, who knows? And using that, though, man did screw things up at some point, And it seems pretty quickly in that it's only in chapter 3 of the Bible that... So the book's this big. And on page 10... And it doesn't even start till page, um, there you go, page seven. So I guess at one, page three of the Bible, man's already screwing things up. That marriage was this great thing. God planned it from the very beginning that we'd be this perfect image of him. And by page three, we've completely screwed it up. And it, this is, for understanding the story of the fall of man, is really important for marriage preparation. And because... 
there's in the original sin, you see sort of the prime um, temptations of man and woman. Um, and we all know the story that you have the two trees in the garden that Adam and Eve are allowed to eat from the one. I mean, there's a bunch of trees, but the two in the middle, they're allowed to eat from the tree of life, but they're not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God says, don't eat from that tree or you're going to die. Um, that one thing I always like to point out, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I remember also being weirded out. When I, I don't know if weirded out is the right word. Um, not understanding when I was younger. I'm like, how could Adam and Eve... I remember thinking myself really smart. How could Adam and Eve know that it was wrong to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil if they don't have any knowledge of good and evil yet? Ha! Riddle me this one. Um, and I remember thinking, like, that's pretty cool for that. But the thing is, when in Hebrew, when they talk about knowledge, there's two different types. Um, that they sometimes mean intellectual knowledge, but then other times they mean experiential knowledge. Um, like when it says that later on that Adam knows his wife and the result is like nine months later they have a child, it doesn't mean that they're sitting around having this intellectual conversation. Um, that there's a difference between intellectual and experiential knowledge. And the thing is, one can have intellectual knowledge of evil without having experiential knowledge of it. Um, that actually it was Plato that said, and actually this is key for understanding why Christ had to suffer, but he didn't actually ever have to sin in order to commiserate with us, um, to be one with us, is that a doctor, he said, has to experience sickness in order to understand his patients, but a judge does not have to commit a crime in order to understand the criminal. Um, that there is a key distinction between the two. So they could know what good and evil were without experiencing it. Now, we all know the story, Adam and Eve, you have the serpent, who is Satan, telling them, hey, God said if you don't eat of this, you're going to die, but I tell you that you won't die if you eat of this tree, but he goes on farther and say, and more than that, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like God. So that's an important key temptation, that man thinking that somehow God was holding something back from him, that when ultimately God was holding nothing back from man. Like God had given us the keys to the Ferrari. He had made us entirely in his image, letting us participate. He was giving everything that he possibly could to man. Except what bothered us is that God alone is. He's the cre he is reality itself. And ultimately, we're passive before God. We don't get to decide what's good and what's evil. Like we receive that. Um, that, that is something that is... Received. We don't get to decide what's true and what's false. We receive that. You can't decide tomorrow. I mean, this is the, the great, I was going to say, absurdity of the age that we're in. That, like, we definitely, I don't know if you remember in the news a couple years ago, that woman that decided that she was a, the, that white woman that decided that she was an African-American and became the head of the NAACP in, like, Washington State. Like, that is absurd because she is not. Um, that that is trying to create reality for yourself, like it is absurd. And ultimately, we'd call that like craziness or insanity. Like the guy, I, I mean, so you see these in the news all the time, like the guy that like, thinks he's a dragon in um, England and has had like all these tattoos and like horns put on, like things like, he's insane. Um, but we don't like to call people insane anymore because we think it's somehow mean. Um, but he has mental problems. Um, 
But ultimately, he wants to make reality for himself. And that's what Adam and Eve want. They want to be God, make reality for themselves. And that's what the serpent's telling them, like, hey, you can make reality for yourself, which is absurd, but that's the, the promise. But a good interpretation that I think is very important for understanding um, marriage and the temptations of marriage that I heard once is that when it talks about the serpent, we always have this image in our mind of like this little garden snake like in the tree, like, hey, trying to be tricksy. Um, but that the word actually used in the Bible, um, that the, the same word is used in the Greek version of the Old Testament, is used um, actually several other times, most notably in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, they don't translate it as serpent. It's the word that's used for describing Satan. They translate it as this giant seven-headed dragon. So think about the term serpent, meaning in like the context of dragon. Think like the hobbit, like smog. Um, that you have a slightly different view of the story when you have this enormous frightening dragon there and saying to Eve, like, hey, if you don't eat of, God said if you eat of this, you're going to die. But I say if you eat of it, you won't die. Um, that there's a certain degree of like intimidation, fear, etc. Um, now that's important because where was Adam during all of this? That um, the story always tells like Eve gets the fruit and then she eats it and then she gives it to Adam. And where is Adam during the entire story? You only find out at the very end when it says she gives the fruit to him and doesn't say what type of fruit. It says she gives the fruit to him and um, and Adam, who was with her, eats it. So you find out at the very end of after Eve has been talking with the serpent, she's done all this, that Adam has just been sitting, standing there silently like a putz the entire time. And when you understand within the context of like, okay, the serpent in this dragon sense, that what is ultimately the original sin? That for the very first sin, in many ways, is Adam's failure to actually protect Eve. Um, that this is men's sort of greatest temptation is to take the back seat. That sometimes it's a lot easier, particularly in the spiritual life, to take the back seat. Um, let her, like women seem to be now are naturally religious, it seems sometimes. So we'll let them be, do the church thing. And you have like the stereotype that the men like, like ultimately dad doesn't want to go to church, but he does to make mom happy, um, which is that is man's greatest temptation not to lead and especially not to lead spiritually which is, first of all, from a practical sense, that the only statistic that they, when they've done all sorts of um, stats on the last like 30 years of people, like kids when they leave Christianity, that the only statistic that has had a, a true correlation of like why these kids leave the church and why these ones don't is does the dad lead spiritually in the family? If the dad doesn't go to church, the kids won't go to church, especially boys, that sons will do whatever the dad does. Um, that if dads don't go to church, then something only like 5% of sons will end up going to church um, of those dads. That that is the biggest st key statistic by far, the only one that's even measurable. Um, so that's man's greatest temptation not to lead. And what's woman's temptation, Eve, from the very beginning, is that is when the man fails to do his job, she says, well, fine, then I'm going to do it. Um, and so, which can also um, be ultimately become the problem, too. Now, anyway, 
What is the result, though, of the sin? That Adam and Eve, that they had this great relationship with each other. They had a great, great relationship with God, because that's another key thing, that when God made Adam and Eve, he made them in relationship with him. Like, Adam was, like, walking around, talking with God. Like, actually, literally, like, walking with God in the garden. Like, that's pretty cool. They had this great relationship. Um, and that's what made Adam and Eve's relationship with each other so good. That there's a key verse in there that... The one that always makes the kids giggle, the, uh, when it says that Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed. That that's actually a key verse for understanding what their relationship was like, and that there was no such thing as lust. That when Adam and Eve saw each other before the sin, they saw the entirety of each other. Meaning, man is a union of body and soul. So you have a physical body, but you also have an eternal soul created for union with God for eternity. And when they would see each other, they would see both. And so, if you saw someone's eternal soul, you would never treat them poorly. Um, this is just a universal truth, that if we were able to see each other's eternal souls, or I'd say it would be a whole lot harder to think of that person as an object to be used. Um, that it's kind of like, there was, a, I don't know who is attributed to, I've heard this quote attributed to a million different people, but there's a saying that some, basically the problem with, for instance, pornography is not that it sees too much of someone, but rather it sees too little, and that it, it reduces human beings to just their body parts, to their, their physical side, and you don't see their eternal souls. Um, if you saw their eternal souls, you wouldn't be able to look at that. Um, that so likewise, Adam and Eve, they were naked and not ashamed because they saw each other's eternal souls. There's no sense of using the other person. They're not, not treating the other person as an object, um, etc., but as a, fully as a person. Now, what happens when Adam and Eve sin? That, first of all, it's important that, because we're getting into how man screws things up and screws up marriage, that it's important that before God even tells the consequences to Adam and Eve, um, he actually promises that he's going to fix it. That he talks to the serpent first, and he had, there's what's called the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. And that when God tells the serpents that he's going to, um, because you've done this, you shall be banned from all the animals and from all the wild creatures. On your belly shall you crawl, and dirt you shall eat all the days of your life. But then here's the key part. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike at your head while you strike at his heel. That this is shown to show that, like, that God's actually going to give a descendant of the woman, um, Eva, like the first woman, a descendant later on, Ave, Ave Maria. That is going to be basically that her offspring is going to make up for what Eve did. And that he's going to, like the Satan will, will figuratively try to strike at his heel and he'll crush the serpent's head. That's why there's a key um, part in, if you've ever seen The Passion of the Christ, the movie where Jesus, he's praying in the garden and the serpent comes up. And why Mel Gibson, when he was directing, put in like Jesus getting up and stomping on the serpent's head because it's pointing back to this verse. So it's key that God's giving mercy, promising mercy before he even lays out the natural consequences. Because the next, though, is he lays out the natural consequences for Adam and Eve. So what did their sin do? Well, ultimately, what it did was it severed their relationship with God. Utterly severed it. Here's God, here's man, they had a relationship, and it's severed. 
So they obviously they're going to get expelled from the garden. They will not be able to eat from the tree of life. They will die. Like that there are just these natural consequences, but they all stem from this fact that man's God, relationship with God is severed. Man is not able to be with God for eternity. Heaven is not possible at this point. Like it is pretty bad. But the key is though that when man's relationship with God is severed, it turns out every other relationship is dependent upon that relationship. So man's relationship with nature gets screwed up. So when he tells Adam and Eve that, hey, like, you're going to have the sweatier brow now, like work is no longer going to be fun, it's going to be hard, and it's going to be painful, that Adam was working in the garden, but there was nothing miserable about it. But now, like, weeds are going to grow faster than grass. Um, that it's going to be hard work living in the world. That you hear the word natural now, at least the first thing that always comes to my mind is natural disaster. Like nature wants to kill you. Um, you may want to be, sometimes we get all romantic about nature, particularly living in the environmentalist age, but no, nature wants you dead. Um, that there's the poem by St. Francis, where he, like, was it um, Brother Son? Um, or dolls the sun like his brother, blah, blah, blah. Um, the thing is, ultimately, he's being poetic. The sun's not your brother. The sun wants to kill you. Spend enough time out in the sun, you're going to get skin cancer and die. Um, that nature gets screwed up. Man's relationship with nature gets screwed up. Man's relationship with himself gets screwed up. Meaning that God gave man this gifts of free will and intellect, but our free will gets weakened and our intellect gets darkened. Um, so now we're pretty stupid. It is really hard to think. Um, you try to do like some, try to do calculus and it makes your head hurt. And you try to think about the mysteries of the Trinity and you just can't quite picture it. Um, and likewise, our free will is pretty weak. It's really hard to do the right thing sometimes. Um, it, we you know, get addicted to our sins. Like we have become more and more like the animals and that it's really hard not just to follow our instincts. Um, but then man's relationship with each other gets screwed up too. Man and woman's relationship. Um, so that Adam and Eve, the first thing that God gives them is clothes um, because they are no longer able to see each other without in the entirety. They now see each other as objects to be used. And there's a reason why every marriage throughout the Old Testament is no longer this relationship of one trying to help the other. Um, it's that of using each other, that the, every single marriage in the Old Testament is screwed up. That if you want to see the state of marriage after original sin, you just have to look at the history of the world. Look at marriage now in non-Christian places. Look at marriage in the Middle East, where men who are physically stronger dominate the women. Like, I mean, Saudi Arabia, I know it's a couple weeks ago, finally allowed women to drive. Wow. Though I remember saying a new, or an article in the news a couple of months back about an 80-year-old woman getting thrown in jail for three months and caned for daring to talk to the milkman. Um, I mean, that is what's it called. That is marriage everywhere throughout history, apart from Christianity. Um, but you look at the marriages in the Old Testament. You have... Abraham, our father in faith. And what is he doing? Well, he's giving up when he's in Egypt and the, the Pharaoh likes Sarah. He gives her up to be in his harem. Um, then he is sleeping with Hagar, the servant, um, and having um, 
kids, or Ishmael by her. You've got David, um, a man after God's own heart, as the Bible calls him. And what is he doing? He's sleeping with Bathsheba and having her husband murdered. Um, You've got Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And what is he doing? Oh, just having 70 wives who ultimately get him to commit the sin of idolatry. Um, There is not a single marriage in the Old Testament. You're like, wow, that's a great marriage. Um, One is screwed up after another. That God gave this great thing from the very beginning, and we screwed it up. Now, that is why later on in the book of Matthew, when Jesus comes, that what times the Pharaoh or the Pharisees are always trying to trip up Jesus. They ask him about divorce and remarriage, and he talks about how Moses used to allow divorce in the Old Testament um, in cases of, of, adult, of adultery, not idolatry, adultery. Um, and because God... Jesus says, because of the hardness of your hearts, God allowed this. Because marriage is so screwed up, it was not able to be lived out the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. Um, The idea of being permanent, of um, being exclusive, that it was not a, like man without, the grace was not there yet um, to be able to live out marriage as it should be. Now, so what did Christ come to do? If the original sin severed the relationship with God, what Christ came to do was to repair the relationship with God. That this ultimately is what Christ did through his suffering and death and resurrection, was he simply restored man's relationship with God. There's a great term um, that is used in theology, and it's one of the few actually English words that actually gets used in theology in all sorts of different languages, but they still use this English word, and that is that of atonement. We talk about Christ's atonement, that it's actually just three English words mushed together. That what Christ did was he accomplished the at-one-ment, that he made us to be able to be at one with the Father. So by taking man's place through his death on the cross, um, and by being God himself, um, he was able to restore that relationship to make up for what Adam and Eve did. Now, because of this, we say that we receive grace. That what Christ does is he opens the gates of grace. That what is grace? That grace is a term that gets used all sorts of ways in different places, but ultimately means God's life in us. That, I mean, whether you talk about, like, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, um, but it is actually having God's life in us, the Holy Trinity residing in our souls. That God, Christ makes this possible. Now, by doing so, he's actually going to give a restore marriage to what it was originally intended to be and give the grace necessary for it actually to be lived out the way it was intended to be lived out from the beginning so that you don't have to have the screwed up marriages of the old testament there's a reason why polygamy is no longer allowed um there's a reason why divorce and remarriage is no longer allowed within the church um because christ gave the grace we say that he's going to elevate it to the level of a sacrament So what are the sacraments? That the sacraments, we talk about if it was through Christ's death on the cross that he he restored man's relationship, that he made it possible for us to have a relationship with God. The question comes up, well, how is that relationship applied to each of us individually? And the normal, the church says the term used is the normal means by which this is done is through the sacraments. The normal means of grace. 
meaning you can receive grace in other ways than just through the sacraments, but it's not the normal way that God does it. That, um, that there's a re- the reason why Christ instituted the sacraments is two parts. Um, one is because what is man? Man is a union of body and soul. That we are not merely pure spirits, but we are in flesh spirits, meaning we actually, like our bodies are part of who we are and what we are. There's a reason why we're going to get them back in heaven. Um, because when we are separated from our bodies at death, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, that's a bad thing. Um, it's an unnatural thing that ultimately only when the two are united are we like, do I have our full selves? And because of this, because grace, God's life in us is this, yeah, you're fine, um, is this unphysical thing. It's a spiritual thing that God is actually allows us to experience these spiritual things, these unphysical things in physical ways to experience through our senses because it's through our physical senses that we learn things, we know things, we experience things. So he actually lets us experience his truths in physical ways. And we actually see examples of this in the New Testament that Christ loved to use physical things in order to do his non-physical things. So think of like healing people, like Christ healing the blind man. Like he could have stood 10 feet away from the blind guy and just like be healed. Um, And the guy would have been able to see he's God. He can do that. But what did Christ do? He got down. He spit in the mud. I mean, that's disgusting. He spit in the mud, um, rubs it together, takes the spit, the mud, rubs it in the guy's eyes so that the guy can feel the physical part and he can feel that he is being um, healed and he is healed. That God's the one who made us union of body and soul. Our bodies are good. The world, the physical world is good. And therefore, he gives us physical ways to experience his truth. So that's one reason why he's going to give sacraments as the means by which to receive his grace. And the second is, what does God do from the very beginning when he lets Adam and Eve, or Adam start naming the animals? Participate. Um, knowing that we're going to screw it up, that we're never going to make it any better than if he just did it himself, but because he loves us, he lets us participate. So that's the other reason why he gives sacraments as the normal means, because they're participatory. Um, that we actually get to participate in the receiving of grace and in, and in, in the work that he did. Um, so what are the sacraments? That the sacraments, we have seven sacraments, they're the physical signs, physical things that Christ gave us to receive grace. Um, I mean, simple as that. They're physical things that Christ gave us to receive grace. And what's specific about the Catholic view on sacraments is that we believe that sacraments are efficacious, meaning that not only do they represent spiritual truths, but they actually do the things they represent. Um, so it's kind of like a stop sign. A stop sign represents the idea that you need to stop, but if you had an efficacious stop sign, it would actually grab you and make you stop. So likewise, we believe like the bread and wine represents the body and blood of Christ, and then it actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. That the priest in confession representing Christ represents Christ forgiving our sins, but then he actually does forgive our sins on Christ's behalf. That baptism 
represents the washing away of original sin, and then it actually does it. Um, And likewise, marriage represents the two becoming one, and then it actually does it. So when Christ elevates marriage to a sacrament, that the two this is why he restores the indissolubility of it, like that it's for life, that the two actually really do become one because Christ, basically, he gives the power to the sacrament, like the electricity behind it, whereby that the two can truly become one. And there's a reason why the church doesn't allow divorce and remarriage because if the two truly become one in a sacrament, what God has joined, it is physically impossible for us to separate. It's a metaphysical reality, like impossibility. Um, you can't pry apart something God has joined. Um, now, one key thing, though, is that with all of the sacraments, that they are signs, they are means of us receiving grace, but like any sign, they are pointing towards eternity. Um, and so some of the sacraments actually do last forever. Like baptism lasts forever. Um, because part of baptism is you receive this indelible mark that shows you've been baptized for eternity. There's never going to be a time for eternity where you're not going to have that relationship with God that you receive at baptism. And actually it's going to be perfected in heaven where that relationship just gets better and better and better. But marriage is not eternal. It actually ends at death. And actually this is the reason why when those Pharisees trying to trick up Jesus again, when they gave him that like scenario where they're like, hey, you had this woman, she like her first husband died, and so she got remarried, and then that husband died, and she remarried, and you do this like eight times. So you have like this black widow, and she's like, hey, they're, they're like, when they get to heaven, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus says, basically, like, you fools, there's no marriage in heaven. And the reason why is that what is marriage doing is pointing towards the Trinity. Like it's a little sign that points towards the Trinity. But then it's also pointing towards the relationship that we'll have with God for eternity in heaven. And the thing is, once you have that relationship, the real thing, you don't need the sign anymore. It's kind of like once you reach the destination, you don't need the road signs sending you there. So... What marriage is, it's ultimately, like I said, this glimpse of the type of relationship we're going to have with God for eternity in heaven. That ultimately, that is what the beatific vision is, the term that we use for the relationship we have with God in heaven. Like, we are going to be married to God. Um, And because of that, we're going to be so full of his perfect love that we are going to have perfect love for all of our fellow human beings. So it's not that you won't love your spouse anymore in heaven. You will love them far more than you ever loved them on earth. But that love is not exclusive to one person. Like, you have perfect love for everyone. Um, so, it actually, you'll have a better relationship, but it's just going to overflow. Um, but it's all basically pointing towards that relationship we'll have with God. And trying to understand heaven is always a little bit difficult, too, um, in its fullness. Now, um, forgetting something, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, yeah, but because marriage is pointing towards this thing, there's a reason why I said that God built it into our human existence from the very beginning, and it's really the Rosetta Stone for understanding the entire Bible, for understanding the entire story of everything, is because the whole point of everything is for us to be with God for eternity in heaven. 
And so because of that, God made, put it in our very existence from the very beginning. But then also, where's Christ's first miracle? It's at the wedding feast of Cana. Um, that his first miracle doesn't coincidentally happen at a wedding. So that um, showing like, hey, God's going to restore this. He's going to make, this is like the, what we screwed up. Just think about it. What happens at the wedding feast of Cana? The couple screws up and that they run out of wine. All they have left is water. Um, that basically they don't have the drink of the gods. They have, though I'd say bourbon's the drink of the gods, but that's another matter. They have this lousy water that's, I mean, and that's their basically human existence. That's what they, they're giving up. Like, this is what we have, water. And what does Christ do is he takes the water, what man gives, and he makes it awesome. Um, and that it's also key that Christ doesn't just turn it into a little bit of wine or mediocre wine. It's not like a like boxed wine, though there actually are some decent boxed wines now. But um, is he takes um, they've calculated it's like something like ten jars that are like seventy gallon jars of water that he turns into wine. So Christ Christ's first miracle is making a really great party at a wedding. That he's like this is that the physical world is good um, that this is a key for understanding what Christ does the sacraments etc but then what does the Bible end with like I said marriage is the Rosetta Stone it ends with a marriage um, the very last thing in the Bible with the, the wedding supper of the lamb in heaven there's a reason why heaven is described as basically a giant wedding feast um, and think of like a good wedding feast um, that's actually like a party so anyway a good party so anyway, marriage is the key for understanding. And actually even understanding all the sacraments. That they all are actually have sort of a matrimonial element to them. That if you went to a Jewish wedding like the time of Christ, there's all sorts of different parts to, the sac to a wedding. You, they actually had like a ritual washing. Think of baptism. They would have a big ritual feast. Um, the Eucharist. were actually physically united with God, um, with Christ himself. That that this is, like I said, it's a foreshadowing of everything great. So there's a reason, like I say, that the church doesn't just think that marriage is good, that, um, but that it's holy, that it's um, one of the, the prime, normal means of grace um, in our lives. It's like all human beings are called to be saints, meaning to be with God for eternity in heaven. And one of the primary ways of growing in holiness is through marriage, through every day having the op opportunity to give up and die to yourself, to give up your will um, presented to you with no choice. When you have a kid puking at three in the morning and it smells awful, you can't just say, sorry, clean it up yourself and going back to bed. Um, that you're faced with like, I have to die to myself and give up my will even though I'd rather not do this. That That is ultimately what we learn to do in life to get, is to give up our wills so that we can rest in God's will. And so marriage is just the this day-to-day -day practice whereby we're given the grace and opportunity to um, grow in holiness.